0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Now, here's something that I've learned by experience. Shake any family tree and you never know what might fall out. Amen? I mean, let's face it, we've all got an uncle or a cousin or... Somebody that we whisper about at family events. It's kind of like the old saying, you know, somebody said that there's a crazy person on every bus. And if you're on a bus and you can't find one, guess what? So if you shake your family tree and nothing strange falls out, guess what? You're it, right? We all have a relative or two we try to avoid or would... would, not be uh, upset if their last names were a little different. There's no surprise there. And here's what's surprising, is that if you shook Jesus' family tree, some of the same things kind of fall out. In fact, he had a few shady characters in that family tree. Actually, some of his relatives... Would make your wayward cousin look like a saint. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to learn about it. Now, here's what's interesting about Matthew, all right? And before I get going, uh, let me just say that this is Lottie Moon Pancake Breakfast Day. How many of you ate pancakes downstairs before you came? Well, it looks like we have lots of opportunity for people to eat, all right? And so I make a deal with you every year. I get you out of here a little early or I can preach a lot longer. But the deal is, if I let you out early, you go eat pancakes, all right? Or at least do the drive-by donation to Lottie Moon, all right? So, is that a deal? Is it okay if I let you out a little early? I got some clapping up here. Of course, I don't listen to James since he walked across the stage in Vanderbilt garb very much. So here's the thing. Matthew, we, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus, right? They are Matthew... Mark, Luke, John. All right, I thought I would get a better response off the top. We have four accounts of the life of Jesus. And all of them tell the same story, but they don't all give the same details. In fact, only two of them really tell us about the birth of Jesus. Now, John kind of does. Just all he says is the Word became flesh. He doesn't give a detail of it. He starts with John the Baptist, all right? And then you have Mark that doesn't even... Mention it, he just jumps right ahead into John the Baptist ministry and goes from there. But Matthew and Luke give us the description of the birth of Jesus. Luke begins with the birth announcement of John the Baptist, then the birth of Jesus, but Matthew chose to begin with not a story, but a genealogy. Because we all know the most exciting way to start any book is a list of names. Amen? Or, oh no, right? I mean, sometimes you start looking at it and you think, well, I don't don't even have to read that part. I mean, I know, we'll just skip on down. But here's the interesting thing. Matthew spends much more time or verses on the genealogy of Jesus than he does on the actual birth of Jesus. Now, Luke gives us a couple of chapters on the birth of Jesus. Matthew gives us a short snippet. And here's what's interesting about Matthew's take is that Matthew is going to set up for us who Jesus is in his genealogy. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy. By the way, just a little note. and uh, We mentioned this on Wednesday night in a Bible study. The word genealogy there is actually the word Genesis. So it's the origin or the beginning of Jesus. This is how Jesus came to be. The Messiah or the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham... Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now here's what's important to understand. Matthew was a Jewish man writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And the first question they would have asked about Jesus was, does he even qualify to be the Messiah? And so Matthew feels like he's got to give the resume before he gives the story. Is he a descendant of David would have been their first question because God had promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And so Matthew starts and he says what? He is the son of David. This is the first description he gives. And then he goes to trace in a lineage how Jesus came through Abraham, through David. But in doing so, he reveals things about Jesus' ancestry that probably could have remained secret. Things that didn't help his case. Jesus was divine, but his origins were not. Used to, when people wrote biographies, they weren't objective. Especially in the day of Jesus... You would hire somebody to write your biography, and when you hired them to write your biography, you would tell them, include this, but don't include that. And so military people only included victories, not the defeats. Only included the sons that achieved, not the ones that sat around and didn't do anything. Only included glorious moments of character, not those failings that happened in their life. They were people that wanted to, uh, in in scholarly terms, they say they wrote hagiographies, not biographies. Now, hagiography means writing to make someone a saint. And the truth is, most of us, if you took out all the bad parts, well, the book may not be very long, but we might look pretty good. Right? Right? And so that's what they did. Ancient historians were forced to put a positive slant. There were gaps in stories, incomplete genealogies, exaggerations. Military defeats were excluded. Crimes were excluded. Children's names that didn't turn out well were excluded. And when we come to the story of Jesus, it's exactly the opposite. In fact, it's so opposite, it could be offensive. For instance... He doesn't just include men. Now to us, that may seem, well, good for him. That's the way to go. But in their day and time, Matthew including women would have been taboo. And it's not just that he included women. It's the women he included. Two of which would have for sure been better not to be there. He includes some women that aren't even Jewish. And for a guy trying to make the case, this is the Jewish Messiah, you wouldn't dare think about putting someone in there that's not Jewish. And he skips Sarah and Rebekah and Leah. Look what it says in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I know that Tamar is not one of those stories everybody just kind of knows. But I will tell you this. Tamar's story is so offensive in some ways that if I were to read it to you right now, there are probably verses I would skip over in mixed company. And some of you are like, no, where is that Tamar? Let me look. <laughs> it is scandalous. All right. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father. I know you know all these guys, but we're just going to run through them. All right. I mean, I know you know Amenadab very well. Amenadab, the, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab. Rahab's got a name that comes after it, right? Rahab the. And I was going to tell you not to say it out loud, but that's all right. In fact, some of you will get to heaven when you meet Rahab. You're going to have to go, oh, Rahab, you're the. Um, That uh, that woman that's in the old. Because the first thing that comes to mind is not pleasant. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth wasn't even supposed to be in this thing. It's an amazing story But when you're trying to prove Jewishness You don't throw in Ruth Boaz, the father of Obed Was the mother of Ruth Obed, the father of Jesse Jesse, the father of King David And David was the father of Solomon Whose mother Who was Solomon's mother? Bathsheba, right? Don't you think that might be a story You might want to cover up If you were trying to make people look good? And look how he writes about it He didn't even name her, does he? Look how he writes about it. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That sounds like a script out of a soap opera, right? Out of my granny used to watch stories every afternoon, right? They weren't soap operas; they were stories. One Life to Live and General Hospital and all those. It sounds like something out of it. it was, and we're talking about the Savior of the world coming from Solomon's mother, whose first husband was Uriah, who got killed by the guy that I've got to be a descendant of. So here's the question. Why highlight the failures? The sinners? The women? Why skip over certain individuals? Why including these? And here's what I want you to get today. Because Matthew knew the point of Jesus coming was that he came for people just like that. He came for the sinners and the failures. He came for the people that most of us would think don't even deserve to be mentioned. Their sin was the reason that he came. In fact, Matthew knew from personal experience that Jesus came for the unfaithful and the sinners because Matthew was the unfaithful and the sinner. He knew the story of Christmas as a story of light piercing darkness, life entering the dominion of death, grace entering the world of law, a story of forgiveness overpowering condemnation. He knew because he was part of the story. He'd experienced it firsthand what it meant to be invited by Jesus to become a follower when everybody else considered you unworthy. In fact, later in his gospel, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be here very quickly. Go to Matthew chapter 9. There's this interesting story in Matthew chapter 9, the first part of it, where... Jesus is coming to Capernaum, and as he arrives at Capernaum, as often happened as his ministry got off the ground, they bring somebody to him to be healed. Some friends say, we've got somebody to be healed. And Jesus walks on, and this particular man was paralyzed. And Jesus walks up to the paralyzed man, and he says something kind of interesting. He says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's not exactly what he was looking for. And the people around start going, wait, wait, did he say sins are free? Only God can. They, they start saying he's blasphemous. And Jesus tells them in verse 6 of chapter Now the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Before they could react, he turns to the paralyzed man and says, get up, take your mat, go home. And he did. And that's when he met Matthew. The next verse. When that story is done in verse 9. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Most people think he would have been set up right there. Right there where the sea came in. Because what they were doing is he would take in as fish were caught. As trade was brought. Matthew was in a prime location for tariffs and taxes. And most of you know this. But they hated tax collectors in the Jewish nation. Particularly... Jews. They were people that could set whatever they wanted to and Jesus is there and he sees Matthew and Matthew has probably just seen what has happened and he walks up to him. In fact, Matthew would have been as bad as anybody we just mentioned in that genealogy. The first time he came eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, he was standing in the Roman tax house on the highway of a port city stealing from God's own people. And before any of Jesus' disciples had a chance to say anything negative, Jesus says to him, Follow me. One author said about this Jesus institutes a form of discipleship that is unexpected and shocking because he breaks down barriers between social classes. Overturns religious conceptions of well-being and abolishes slavish adherence to religious cultural traditions. And all of that begins with the call of a tax collector named Matthew. You know what's interesting to me? Is that sadly, since the moment Jesus broke down the barriers of social classes, overturned religious conceptions of well-being and abolish slavish adherence to religious cultural traditions, the church has been trying to build them back. But that's not what Jesus came for. Verse 9 says, And Matthew got up and followed Him. You know the reason that Matthew included all of those strange, illicit stories in the genealogy, I believe, It's because Matthew said, I am one. And let me tell you something that's comforting this Christmas. So are you. And part of what Christmas is about is us stopping the pursuit of God by standing on what we've done. Matthew was basically saying, it has nothing to do with how good you are or how bad you are. And what I would want for you this unexpected Christmas season is that you would stop pursuing God because of what you've done or you would stop avoiding God because of what you've done. And instead, that you would approach God, seek God based on what He's done. The truth is that Matthew said that Christmas is about God drawing near to those who are far Away. Christmas is about God coming near to us. God has drawn near to those who have been drawn away. If you're here this morning and you're someone that even in your Christianity has tried to follow God based on what you've done or are doing, it is time to let it go. Here's the truth Sin is not cured by religion. Sin is not cured by going to church or doing your duty or serving anyone. Sin is cured by Jesus. In fact, at the end of this, Jesus takes Matthew and they go have dinner at Matthew's house. And all the Pharisees start going to the disciples. Are you sure you want to follow this guy? All he does is eats with sinners and tax collectors. And this is when Jesus comes out and says, I have not come for the healthy. I have come from the sick. Now, here's the tragic thing about that for the Pharisees is they thought they were healthy when they were, in fact, sick. And the tragedy for many of us today in the church is we think we're healthy. And we need Jesus every day more than ever. Would you pray with me this morning?